We're in the second wave of our message series that's laid out on my t-shirt this morning, No Perfect People Allowed. Every week in this series, we're meeting an individual in the Bible who had issues, personal junk that most of us would expect to disqualify them from being used by God for anything that really mattered. And as we look at them, we're going to be encouraged because you and I have issues as well. And despite their issues, God still did significant things in them and through them. And as we study their lives, we're going to find that there is no failure that can rob us from God still using us in the future. God has a redeeming plan, and no matter how far you've gone, God is able to still do good in the time that we have left on this planet. God is a God of second chances, third chances. God's bigger than our issues. Every message in this series is designed to build and encourage your faith, and if you're good, listen in, because I guarantee you know somebody that needs to hear this. So store this up so that you can encourage someone when the time comes. If you made it here today without a Bible or an outline, just go ahead and raise your hand. And before we jump in, I want you to have a Bible. We're going to be flipping around a lot today. Put your hand up, keep it up, and our ushers will bring you one. Today, we're going to be beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And you can flip there, and I'll give you some context as we get going. The question is this, why is it that some Christians live their lives barely holding on to their lives? while other Christians seem to be experiencing a move of God on a near daily basis? Why is it that you bump into some Christians, they come to church and they're always downcast? There's always a new sob story. They've always had a rough week. While other believers, you bump into them and they're always saying, man, God is so good. Let me tell you what the Lord did this week. Let me tell you what God is doing in my life. And when they tell you about a difficult time, you can't even get a word in because they end the sentence with what you were going to say next, which is they tell you they're having a rough time, but they end it with, but God is so good. He's going to take care of it. Why are some Christians like that and some Christians like that? Why do some Christians seem to soar with the eagles while other Christians seem to have lassoed an eagle and seem to be being pulled along the ground by the eagle? Both types of Christians love Jesus. Both types of Christians are going to heaven. What's the difference? That's what we're going to talk about today. All of it comes down to the issue of faith. I'm fond of saying faith is the currency of the kingdom. Faith is what the Lord uses to get things done here on the earth. He works through our faith. And for the purposes of our study today, I want to break down faith into just two types, survival faith and victorious faith. Survival faith is the belief that God has saved you from your sins and has made a way for you to one day be with him in heaven, but survival faith pretty much stops there. The greatest faith that the person who has survival faith will ever show is trusting Jesus to save them from their sins. That's the greatest step of faith they'll ever take. Survival faith is all about if I can just hold on till Jesus comes back or the sweet embrace of death comes for me, then everything will be okay if I can just hold on. That's survival faith. Victorious faith is the belief that Ephesians 2.10 is really true, where Paul wrote, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Victorious faith believes that our earthly lives have purpose. We're not just passing time until Jesus comes back or we're taken to be with him. There are things that the Lord wants us to do in this life that will bring glory to him, and he's given us the power to accomplish them through his Holy Spirit. 
Survival faith is just trying to hold on till the earthly life is over. Victorious faith is facing the giants, conquering enemies, conquering obstacles, taking on the impossible when the Lord says to do so. These are two very different types of faith and two very different ways to live. If you want to live your life in victorious faith, and I hope that after that description, you're like, yeah, that's the one I want. I hope so. If you want to live in victorious faith, then listen up, tune in. I'm going to share the secret that it all comes down to. Write this down. This is what it's all about. Survival faith believes in God. Victorious faith believes God. Survival faith believes in God, but victorious faith believes God. Today we're going to unpack some of what that looks like. We're going to look at a few snapshots from the life of Abraham and Sarah. To this day, Abraham enjoys the legacy of being the father of the faith. That's a pretty big title. But his life had plenty of twists and turns along the way. Abraham's name was originally Abram, and his wife's name was originally Sarai, later changed to Sarah. So if you hear me using the different names, that's what's going on. They're the same people. So Abraham marries Sarah, Sarai at the time, and the Bible tells us that Abraham, his father, and his nephew, the extended family, they all moved together into Canaan, the place that would later become known as the Promised Land, including the territory where modern-day Israel is. And in Genesis 12, the Lord shows up while Abraham's living in Canaan and speaks to Abram, giving him an incredible promise. Read with me, Genesis 12:1. It says, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, and then I want you to underline, from your family, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How would you like that? You're just going about your business one day and the Lord shows up and gives you that promise. I'm going to make you great, going to bless every person who ever lives on the face of the earth through you. That's a good day. That's a really, really good day. And I had you underline God's command to Abram that he get out of the country from your family because I want you to understand what it's saying. He's not saying his, his wife. He's saying his extended family. He's saying, Abram, just you. Just you, your wife, your crew. I want you to roll out. And I had you underline that because notice what verse four, the very next verse says. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and then underline, and Lot went with him. Abraham's obedience lasted half a verse till it was recorded that he directly defied the Lord. That's not a good start. If I was God, I'd be like, didn't I? Didn't I just specifically say to leave your family? I guess I must be crazy. See, I thought that the fact that I'm God and just appeared to you would carry some weight. Maybe I'm crazy. Abram directly defies the command of the Lord and brings his nephew Lot with him. Let me walk you through the results of that decision because I think the results reveal to us why the Lord told Abram not to bring his extended family with him on his journey. So very quickly in Genesis 13, Lot's herdsmen start getting into fights with Abram's herdsmen because there isn't enough land and water for all of their livestock. Abram's a good guy, and so he tells Lot, you know, we should go our separate ways, get some space between us so there's enough room for all of us, for all of our cattle. And he even lets Lot choose the spot first. So Lot, being kind of an ingrate, chooses what he thinks is the best place to go 
based on geography. So he looks at the soil, he looks at the water supply, he's like, that's the sweetest spot, that's where I want to go. Small detail, that spot includes a city by the name of Sodom and a city by the name of Gomorrah, which was already, quote, exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. But that doesn't really bother Lot because Lot was making what he thought was the best financial decision. The righteousness of where he was going wasn't a factor in his decision-making at all. He just thought, what's the best thing for me? What's going to make me rich and wealthy as fast as possible? Then in Genesis 14, one chapter later, Abram ends up having to rescue Lot and his family because they got caught up in a war involving the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they ended up getting kidnapped. Abram takes his 318-man private militia and frees them. He's a wealthy guy. If you have a 318-person private militia, you're a wealthy guy. Then in Genesis 19, we read the famous story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in which Lot and his family have to be rescued by angels. And what floors me is that being kidnapped with his family earlier wasn't enough to make Lot think, maybe Sodom isn't the best place for me and my family to live. I think being kidnapped would have an impact on me as far as the security of my dwellings. They're still there in Genesis 19. So Abram made a foolish mistake in letting his emotions, his emotional attachment to his nephew Lot get the better of him when he defied the Lord's command. Lot was nothing but a burden and a weight. So write this down. This is the lesson. God told Abram to leave his extended family because they weren't on the same journey. They weren't on the same journey. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Lot had survival faith. Lot was a believer, no question. The Lord was calling Abram to a journey of victorious faith. But Abram trusted his emotional attachment to Lot more than he trusted God. And we need to be very, very careful about making the same mistake. So imagine having a workout partner. You say, you know, I made the decision to get in shape, but you know, I've done all the research and having a workout partner can make a world of a difference. So imagine your workout partner while you're working out is constantly sipping on Coke and eating candy bars. Imagine your workout partner is constantly saying, I think that's enough for today after five minutes of working out. Imagine having a workout partner who says things like, you know, I find that when things get difficult, it's best to quit. Lot was the spiritual equivalent of that guy. And the Lord was saying, I love him. He's one of my boys. But Abram, he's not going where I've called you to go. And there's no room for dead weight on this bus. Lot was Abram's first mistake. And that's a lesson for you and I. If we're going to live in victorious faith, there may be people you have an emotional attachment to who you would love to come with you on that journey. But it's very possible the Lord may say, you can't make them choose to live in victorious faith. If they choose to live in survival faith, that's their choice. But here's the thing, they can't come with you where you're going because they're always going to be saying, this is getting too scary. This is getting too difficult. This is too impossible. They're gonna constantly be slowing you down and dragging you down. You've got to ask the question, are they going where the Lord has called me to go? So let's back up a bit and discover the second major failure in Abram's life. Shortly after setting off from his extended family, except for Lot, and settling in a new part of Canaan, a, a famine hits the land. Let's read together Genesis 12. We'll pick it up in verse 10. 
It says, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, if this was a Hollywood romance movie, this would be the perfect spot for our hero, Abram, to say, but babe, I want you to know, it's not what's gonna happen. If anyone tries to take you, I'll kill them. And if they send more men to take you, I'll kill them too. Nothing in the universe is gonna keep us apart. Good answer, that's right. That's how the script's supposed to go. Or if this was a Christian movie, Kirk Cameron starring in it as Abram, <laughs> Kirk Cameron Abram would say something like, but I want you to know, we have nothing to fear. The Lord made me some incredible promises just earlier in this chapter. So we can trust that the Lord is going to fight for us. We have nothing to fear. Oh, Abram, you're such a man of God. But Abram doesn't propose either of those two solutions. No, he's got a much braver, more faith-filled solution. Verse 13, please underline, say you are my sister that it may be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. So get this, Abram's plan is that when the Egyptians come to take his wife, they won't kill him if they think he's just her brother. There's no other way to say this. Abram's not a stupid man and he is willing to pimp his own wife to save his own skin. That's what he's doing. He knows what that means when he says, say that you're my sister. He knows what they're going to do when they take her. And he's like, but you know what? I'll get to live. And that, that's really what's most important in this situation. How heroic, right, ladies? Verse 14, so it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He, Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. These were all given to Abram just to say, I think your sister's freaking hot, so here, have some cattle and riches, and uh, everything's cool, right? So let me explain what's happened. Pharaoh has taken Sarai into his harem. To keep everything above board, he's given Sarai's brother, Abram, cattle, livestock, treasure, Abram's making out like a bandit. So there is Sarai in Pharaoh's harem. Nothing has happened yet, but she knows what's going to happen soon. She's looking out the window, and there's Abram. He's dirty, he's sweaty, and he's saying, look at all this stuff. The plan is working perfectly. God is so good. He's so good. Sarai has to be thinking, uh, you know, maybe Egypt wouldn't be so bad. Abram's sort of a chubby middle-aged dude. Pharaoh's rocking a six-pack, always in good shape. I'm, I'm, I'm taken care of here. I'm in a palace. I'm catered to. Pharaoh on the plus side, not a shameless coward. I think you ladies could attest to the fact that in that situation, Sarai is probably not aching to be back with her brave husband, Abram. She's probably sitting there going, uh, you know, if they kill him, they kill him. You know, the Lord is Lord. Let's see, see, see what the Lord wants to do. Verse 17, 
But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. God was very, very gracious. He protected Sarai inside Pharaoh's harem, caused Abram to acquire much wealth, and they both left Egypt alive. In that situation, you get on your knees, you thank God for his grace, and you learn your lesson, right? Wrong. Flip to Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. Jump ahead in the future. Genesis 20, verse 1 says, And Abram journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, underline, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So not only does Abraham do it again, But verse 13 of this chapter will tell us that this was Abraham's standard practice anytime they were going through territory that they thought might be dangerous. They would just run the sister bit. Verse 5 tells us that by this point later on in the future, Sarah has even gotten on board with it. She's like, yeah, I'm his sister, just like what he says. Abram's bad example has rubbed off on her, and she's taken on his fear as well instead of faith. This story ends the same way as the last one. Abraham and Sarah are given treasure and wealth and sent on their way. But what a failure. What a failure of faith. So write this down. This is Abram's second great failure. When it came to his wife, Abram trusted his plans over God's promises. When it came to his wife, Abram trusted his plan over God's promise. And Sarai picked up on that over the years. So when she was facing her own great fear much later on, she too decided to trust her plans over God's promises. You see, Sarai's great fear was that their family would never have a child, specifically a son. Let's turn to chapter 16, back to 16, and we'll start in verse 1. Chapter 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Apparently she was a Swedish shot put athlete or something like that. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. So Sarai comes up with her own plan rather than trust the promise of God. And Abram, in the most predictable male response of all time, is happy to go along with it. Well, if you think it's what's best for the family, I mean, she's way younger and better looking than you, but if it'll make you happy, I'll be a team player. It says, and Abram heeded the voice of Sarai, unsurprisingly. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. What was the result of Abraham? And Sarai's sin in this case. Well, Sarai becomes immediately bitter towards Hagar and most likely starts beating her physically and making her life a living hell. God sends an angel to smooth the situation over and Hagar ends up giving birth to a child named Ishmael. In verses 11 and 12 of this chapter, the angel of the Lord gives this prophecy to Hagar concerning her son Ishmael. 
Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. That prophecy would indeed come true as out of the family line of Ishmael would come the Arab people. And out of the Arab people would arise what? Islam. Islam. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. That's a big consequence. That's a really big consequence. The world, the Middle East, has been dealing with the fallout of Abram and Sarai's sin ever since the birth of Ishmael. That's a long time. Let me tell you the future. They're not going to get over it till Jesus comes back, literally. And this is the lesson from this mistake. Make a note of this, and I'll explain it. Even when our plans seem to succeed, the result of not trusting God's promises is always bitterness. Even when our plans seem to succeed, the result of not trusting God's promises is always bitterness. Here's what I mean by this. When we know the Lord has a will and a purpose and a plan for us and we reject it, we say, I'll come up with my own plan instead. Or I think the Lord might have a plan, but I really don't want to hear it, so I'll come up with my own plan. Even when our plans work, we're not fulfilled. We're not satisfied. Why? Because deep down, we have that nagging spiritual knowledge that God had more for us. He had more for us. We knew that he had something better for us that we could have been walking in had we just had the faith to believe him. When you know that you've missed out on God's best, it makes it very hard to enjoy what you went and got for yourself instead. And the results never fully satisfy. They're still bitter, even when they work. Abraham and Sarah aren't looking so good thus far. Not looking so good. God's ways are always better. So let's find out what God's plan was regarding Abraham and Sarah having a son. Turn to chapter 18. And I'll just tell you that in the chapter before, in chapter 17, the Lord appears to Abraham again and tells him that next year he's going to have a son named Isaac. Abraham chuckles to himself and thinks, I'm 100. She's 90. How are you going to pull this one off, Lord? Let's start reading together at the beginning of Genesis 18. It says, Then the Lord, that's Jesus, appeared to him, Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. It's Jesus and two angels. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where's Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here, in the tent. And he, Jesus, said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. Nine months from now. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. 
Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? And then underline this sentence. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. When Jesus shows up, he's only repeating the promise that he made all the way back in chapter 12. You can't become a great nation if you don't have any kids. There's a real problem with that promise coming true. There's a difference between the way that Abraham laughed in chapter 17 and the way Sarah laughs here. Abraham is laughing. He's going, okay, how? But Sarah's response is impossible. Impossible. Sarah laughs as she listens in on their conversation out of sight. The whole thing seems ridiculous to her, but when she stands face to face with Jesus, she's suddenly filled with fear, and she says, I didn't laugh. What are you talking about? What's the lesson here? I want to suggest to you it's this. Nobody mocks God's promises when they're looking at God. Nobody mocks God's promises when they're looking at God. If God's promises seem ridiculous to you, if you find yourself chuckling and shaking your head, thinking to yourself, (laughs) not for me, there's only one explanation. You're not looking at God. You're looking at your problem. You're looking at your lack of resources. You're looking at your limitations. In fact, you're probably looking at everything except God. How do I know? Because I'm like you. I make the same mistakes that you make. I'm guilty of the same things. But I've also realized that when I focus on the Lord and who he is, then my perspective changes. And the question Jesus asked Abram is asked once again to my own heart by the Holy Spirit. Jeff, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Those are some significant failures. There's direct disobedience to the Lord. There's doubt. There's fear. There's a pattern of lying to get out of dangerous situations. Lots of mistakes. Lots of mistakes like Lot. And yet Abram's legacy is that he is the father of the faith. In the New Testament, James tells us that Abram was called the friend of God. The friend of God. God didn't just tolerate Abraham. He loved Abraham. He called him a friend. Why is that? Genesis 15, 6 gives us the reason when it tells us this about Abraham. He believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. In other words, Abraham was not necessarily a righteous man, but he believed the Lord, and the Lord said, that faith in me will make you righteous. And you might say, well, what about all those catastrophic screw-ups? Paul, the apostle, writes about the legacy of Abraham and Sarah in Hebrews 11, the famous Hall of Faith chapter, where it says in Genesis 15, 6, he believed in the Lord. The better translation really is that he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Hebrews 11, Hall of Faith. This is what Paul says, starting in verse 8. By faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. You might want to underline that in your Bibles or on your outlines. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And then underline, and he went out not knowing where he was going. 
from the moment he received that amazing promise from the Lord in chapter 12 till the day he died, Abraham was moving around and living in different places based on where the Lord told him to go. Even if there were dangers and enemies in the unknown, Abraham still kept moving forward. That's faith. Literally living on a word from the Lord. That's serious faith. God gave Abraham a promise and he constructed his whole life around the belief that God would keep his word. I think that impresses the Lord. I think that blesses the Lord. If you wanted to know if Abram's faith was real, it would be proven by the fact that you would find him living in a tent. Why was he doing that? Because he was ready to go wherever the Lord sent him. Why was he wherever he was when you met him? Because God told him to be there. Even where he was was the evidence of his faith. How many of us would be willing to pack up and move if the Lord told us to? What if he called us to move but didn't tell us where we were going? What if he just said, sell everything, buy an RV, more instructions will follow? How many of us would do that? That's what Abraham did. We're talking about serious faith. Write this down. Abraham's life was literally led by the Lord. His life was literally led by the Lord. In verse 9 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We talked about this several times in our Revelation series. At some point, the Lord gave Abraham a revelation of heaven, what heaven was going to be like, the city whose builder and maker is God. And Abraham was so blown away by what he saw that he lost any desire to build himself a mansion or a kingdom on the earth. He was, by all accounts, one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest man on earth. And yet he lived his life in tents. Because once you've seen heaven, it's kind of hard to get excited about any construction project here on the earth. We're going to build you the greatest house ever. You know, in heaven, that's like a tool shed, right? But, but this is the greatest architecture any man has ever made. Uh, just forget about it. He loved heaven more than he loved earth. And Abraham's lifestyle, make a note of this, Abraham's lifestyle revealed his beliefs. His lifestyle revealed his beliefs. If you wanted to know what he really believed, you just had to look at his life. Why are you living here? Because the Lord told me to be here. Why are you living in a tent? You have tons of money. Because I've seen heaven. And I don't value the earth. I don't value stuff here. I value where I'm going. His life backed up his beliefs. It was real evidence. He valued his future with the Lord even more than his present. You know, Sarah gets a bad rap a lot of the time. Many people view Abraham as the hero and Sarah as the, the doubting ne'er-do-good wife. And yet the Bible puts her in Hebrews 11 along with the giants of the faith and holds her up as the example of a woman of faith. Paul writes in verse 11, underlined by faith, by faith. Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, and then underline, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Did you catch that? Sarah gained the strength to have Isaac by faith. Wasn't she mocking that idea last time we bumped into her? So, so what does this mean? 
It means that after Jesus and the angels left the tents of Abraham and Sarah, in the days that followed, in the moments that followed, Sarah changed her attitude. She repented. She got in agreement with the Lord's promise for her, and she decided to start walking in faith. I love that phrase, she judged him faithful who had promised. It means that she really thought about the Lord. She thought about who he was and everything he had done in her life and Abraham's life up to that point. She really thought about it. She thought about all the times that the Lord had rescued them and made a way where there was no way. She thought about all the times the the Lord had blessed them despite their failures, all those times when they had lied about her being Abraham's sister and yet had somehow come out of that more wealthy and alive. She weighed and considered the Lord's track record in her life and she came to the informed conclusion, he's faithful. He is faithful. And if he promised something, he'll keep his promise. Make a note of this. Sarah remembered God's faithfulness and changed her attitude about the future to one of faith. Sarah remembered God's faithfulness and changed her attitude about the future to one of faith. And in verse 12, Paul tells us the outcome of their faith. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. There's many other examples of the faith of Abraham and Sarah in the Bible. But the other big one Paul mentions in Hebrews 11 is the one I want to hit on. Keep your finger there in Hebrews 11 and flip to Genesis 22. Back to Genesis 22. And I got to preface the story I'm about to share so that you don't think, what a cruel and terrible God. You need to understand what's going on here. Abraham and Isaac are going to go up a hill together, a mountainside together. Around 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is going to go up that same hill and be crucified there one day. Everything that we're about to read is going to parallel. It's going to be a pattern. It's going to prophesy what Jesus is going to do on that same hill with one difference. Jesus Christ is going to die on that hill. All the disturbing feelings that you have as you read what we're about to read, you're supposed to be disturbed because it's supposed to trouble you what it means for a father to put his son on the altar and to have his son killed. You're supposed to be disturbed as you read it. It puts you in the place of the father and causes you to understand his perspective in giving his son Jesus on the cross for you and I. So with that lens, with that understanding, let's read Genesis 22 verse 1. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, now take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off and Abraham said to his young men stay here with the donkey the lad the actual translation is the young man and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And I just want to point out, 
even the Bible TV series, all the books you read, they get this wrong because they always show Isaac as a boy and they show Abraham like wrestling him, overpowering him and putting him on the altar. The literal translation is he's a young man. He's a young man who's strong enough to carry all the firewood up the side of a mountain. He's a young man. He's in his late teens or his early 20s. And it's important because he gets on the altar. Isaac gets on the altar. He's not forced on the altar. Why is that important? Because this is all prophetic of what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't forced on the cross. He said, no man takes my life, but I lay it down. Isaac was a young man. He got on the altar willingly. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son Your only son, get the emphasis, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That's prophetic as well. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice." Now turn back to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11:17. Let's read what Paul writes about this. Verse 17, he says, By faith, underlined by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. So he's saying, get this, all the promises God had given him couldn't seem to come true if he gave up the only son, the only way for those promises to come true. Of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. And then underline this concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. So when you think, what kind of dad would be willing to kill his own son even if God told him to? Here's the explanation. Abraham thought deeply about it, about who God was, about what God could do, and he concluded that surely God would raise Isaac from the dead if he was asking him to kill him. Abraham understood that God was doing something, and even though we didn't understand it, he said, I trust the character of God, and I trust the power of God, and I trust the goodness of God. So if he asks me to put my own son, my most treasured possession on the altar, I trust him. He believed that when this was all over, he said, I don't know how, but here's what I believe. When this is all said and done, my testimony will still be God is good. I believe that. I don't know how he's going to pull it off, but I believe that. That's faith. That's incredible faith. Write this down. Abraham trusted God with that which was most precious to him. That which was most precious to him. 
And again, so you never forget, if you think that's disturbing, it's all paralleling what the Father would have to go through in offering Jesus Christ for you and I. And Jesus would indeed be raised up even from the dead. Abraham was absolutely right about what the Lord could do. When you read that account, it becomes clear why Abraham was considered a friend by God. He had incredible faith, incredible faith in the goodness of God. And I want us to notice this, that even on the journey of faith, even on the journey of faith, we're going to have moments where our faith lapses and we make serious mistakes. Even on the journey of faith, we will have lapses of faith, even while we're on the journey. But in Abraham's life, those things have ended up being the exception to the norm. His life was characterized by faith. Is your life characterized by faith? Are those moments where you walk in fear and doubt instead of faith, are those the norm or are those the exception? Is your life characterized as a life of faith or a life of fear and doubt with random moments of faith scattered in there somewhere? Here's a huge question. What can you point to in your life that is evidence of your faith? What can you point to in your life and say, I'm only here, I'm only doing this, I only have this, I only took this on because I believe in God? What's the risk that you're taking for the Lord? What's the step of faith? What I'm saying is when the Lord says, trust me in this, is your response yes? Or is it like, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's for someone else. That's not for me. What's your normal response? Which response characterizes your life? Survival faith believes in God. Victorious faith believes God. Two people can read the Bible the same amount and it won't produce the same result in each person. The difference is our willingness to apply what God's word teaches us. Here's what I mean. When we read something in the Bible, we have to be constantly asking ourselves this question. What would this look like in my life if I truly believed this was true? What would this look like in my life if I truly believed this was true? When we refuse to make our lives a mirror of what we read in the Bible, what we're really saying is, I don't believe this. Well, I believe in God and Jesus. I, I just don't believe that doing what his word says, taking it literally is really the best way for me to live. That's believing in God without believing God. Is there something specific in your life right now that you know doesn't line up with the word of God? It may be something that you need to stop doing, but it may be something you need to start doing. You know that this is in his word. You're not confused about that. You just haven't had enough faith to actually turn it into action yet. You have to make a choice. Do you want to live a life of survival faith? Just holding on, just making do, dragging yourself to church every Sunday? If I can just get through one more week, maybe I'll die or Jesus will come back. <laughs> There's always hope. Or do you want to see God do amazing things in your life? Do you want to know what it's like to put everything on the line to trust in the Lord and see him do something amazing? Do you want to know what it's like that, 
that as he looks across the earth, looking for those whose hearts are inclined toward him, he finds you and he says, there, right there. If I ask it, they'll do it. Do you want to know what it's like to be one of those people? Do you want to see miracles with your own eyes? Do you want to tell your kids your own stories about what the Lord did in your life? Or do you want to read them books about all the great things he did for other people who trusted God? Survival faith believes in God. Victorious faith believes God. It believes God. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Would you just make yourself available to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit? And if you know that the Lord is highlighting something or if he speaks something into your spirit, if it's difficult, I want to encourage you, just go back to that question. Do you want to have a survival faith or do you want to have a victorious faith? Do you want to tell stories of just getting by or do you want to tell stories about seeing the power of God move through your life? There are going to be a lot of hiccups on the journey of faith. There's going to be a lot of failures along the way. All that matters is, is your life characterized by faith or by fear? Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.